Welcome to episode 204 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. Today we are looking up with Don McColls. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who loves going out under the stars like we do. This episode today is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Henry. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for your support. We do really appreciate uh, all of the support that the listeners um, you know, provide to us through Patreon to enable us to, uh, to bring you two episodes a week. Without, uh, without you, the listener, these episodes would not be possible. Anything to add to that, Shane? Well, just thanks, Henry. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Yeah, great. So we're going to dive in here. I'm going to read a, a brief introduction, and then we'll uh, we'll have a conversation with uh, with Don. So um, Don McColls has been interested in astronomy since he was a small boy. And uh, I, I wrote growing up in Virginia, and then he wrote me back and corrected me and said that I think he lived in, in many, many different places by the time he lived in Virginia, because uh, he was moving around quite a bit as, as a young person. As a teen, he hunted down all the messy objects using a six-inch, I think it was a dinoscope reflector, and soon after began searching for comets. Don has become widely known as the most successful living visual discoverer of uh, many comets, 12 comets, I, I think right now, including 96P McColls, uh, 141 McColls, uh, C2004 Q2, remember that one, and yeah. comet... Uh, uh, 2018 v1 mccall's fujikawa iwamoto i think those are the ones that i've seen I, I tried to put in the ones that i've seen but there's there's several more um he has also received many awards and last year in 2021 he received the Le leslie c pelche award from the astronomical league for these discoveries uh he's also won many of the uh i think it's the edward wilson awards that are that are uh, awarded to comet discoveries each year uh of course because he's found many comets over the past several decades uh, he has authored uh, several books, including The Observing Guide to the Messy Marathon. Um, but I have this book. I don't know if you guys can see it, which is the uh, Messy Marathon Observer's Guide Handbook and Atlas, a complete guide to running your own Messy Marathon by Don McColls. This was the first real observing book that I ever bought. And it's I know people can't see this, but it's uh, it's like a spiral bound with the plastic spiral. It's it's like kind of like a workbook you'd have uh, at, at a university course or a seminar or something. And uh, even though it's it's many decades old now, um, so it was a great book to really dive in. Okay, and then he's also a podcaster. You can find him by looking up looking up with Don. Looking up with Don is the name of his podcast. Um, if you haven't listened to that yet, you should. It's a, it's another visual observing podcast. There's not many of them. And you can find all about Don at donmacholes.com. And it's spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, Don. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris and Shane. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you. Um, and we go back a little ways. Actually, we, you were the first guest that we ever had electronically uh, or digitally when we were uh, working to get guest speakers in at our local astronomy club. And thank you for that. <laughs> yes, I looked it up. It was uh, March uh, 5th, 2004, I believe. 2000. Anyway, uh, I yeah, 2010. And uh, I talked about the Messe Marathon. 
and I had sent yeah. you electronically the PowerPoint, and uh, in in your uh, conference room, you advanced the slides while I walked walked through the whole Messe Marathon uh, lecture. It was great. Yeah, it was it was amazing, and there was there was a couple things that happened there. Um, I, I recall that the, the technology much of the technology failed us and we ended up calling you on somebody's cell phone and putting you on the speaker and, uh, and you spoke and, and I advanced the slides or Shane advanced the slides. One of us advanced the slides. And uh, I wish I'd taken a photo because I thought maybe we'd have a few more people um, and our room could comfortably hold 18. And that day, I think it uncomfortably held about uh, 35 or 40 people. <laughs> so, okay. And, and it was my BlackBerry phone that we put in the middle of this boardroom table with everybody squeezed in like sardines as close <laughs> as they could get to this little cell phone to, to hear the audio. So with the technology failures that night, I think we did a, a pretty good ad lib or ad hoc job to, to uh, you know, get through it. And I think it was enjoyed by everybody. There was a lot of good discussion afterwards as well. That was a, that was a fun night. So we, we actually, Shane and I end up, uh, we, we were just, we had just basically met at that point and he was the president of the club. And, uh, and after that, he and I kind of started going for beer every once in a while um, in order to help line up guests. And that, that eventually turned into this podcast. So in a way you helped to found this podcast. <laughs> Good. You guys do a great job. I've listened to uh, some of the episodes and it's very well done. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, um, we, we've kind of got a, got a first set of questions here. We've got, we've got several sets and there's no pressure for us to get through them all. Uh, we could always do another, uh, another round at a future point in time, but, but maybe we'll just start off, uh, asking you a little bit about your podcast, looking up with Don. Um, it's one of the few other visual observing podcasts that are out there. Uh, maybe if you can just tell us how you get started podcasting and, and anything else about your podcast, Looking Up with Don, that, that you'd wish to share? Well, Chris and Shane, it began something like this. Um, after I retired and semi-retired, I still do some work now and then, but moved to Arizona, my wife said, you know, you ought to do a YouTube channel. A lot of people do YouTube channels, and you ought to do it about astronomy because you know about astronomy. And I thought about that for a year and I thought, well, then I'm filming myself showing telescopes and stuff and it would probably get a lot of traffic, maybe generate some income and stuff. But I, I didn't really ever start anything like that. And then as uh, we got to around Christmas of 2020, uh, no, 2019, I thought it over. And I thought, well, why not a podcast? I can talk about these things. I don't have to set up cameras and uh, portable microphones and stuff in order to do it and clear the background and so on. I, I mean, I could just do the podcast. So I began uh, doing the podcast. I decided to do it every week and it comes out this effective. It comes out usually Monday or Tuesday uh, and it's effective every week from Wednesday through the following Tuesday. And I know a lot of amateur astronomers go out observing on the weekend. So I get to cover the weekends. What you can expect to see this weekend, people can kind of plan ahead. I decided to do it about visual astronomy, which is my passion, your passion. A lot of people, I find out, are still 
doing visual astronomy. Maybe a hundred years from now, it yeah. won't be that way, but it still is now. We're the guys who go out and we look at the sky with the uh, unaided eye and binoculars and telescopes. We work on ways on seeing finger objects. We look for dark sky sights. That's one of our <laughs> topics here that we, we, uh, we're always involved in. Every amateur is looking for a new dark sight. Um, we, we try to get the optimized instrument for whatever type of observation we want to do, whether it's observing the planets or even the sun or the moon, but a lot of us do deep sky stuff. And um, visual astronomy is something that I've realized people are still interested in, uh, not just the amateur astronomers, but the general public. That's usually how they enter the hobby of astronomy is through visual astronomy. And when I lived in Northern California, I moved there um, up to Colfax uh, in uh, 1991. Uh, I began doing star parties there, and we showed people stuff through our telescopes, and we saw the excitement they would have of looking at things quite often for the first time. I also taught a class at a nature center, and that was visual astronomy. People want to know what they can go out and see in the sky. Your podcast does that. My podcast does that. Not all the astronomy podcast will tell you what you can see this week up in the sky. Yeah. And then I taught at Sierra College, a junior college, an adult education class. And we had uh, twice a year, each semester, we had six weeks of classes every Thursday night, in which we had an hour of lecture. <laughs> they had to listen to me for an hour. And then we all went out and looked at the sky. Nice. And the first uh, First night, I would bring a telescope. We look through the telescope. Second week, everybody brings binoculars. And if you don't, you borrow some of mine. And we all learned binoculars. The third week, we all learned how to use a telescope. If you don't, if you don't have one, we had them. And, and you learned everything about how to use a telescope. So in six weeks, I was able to get people to the point where they became fairly efficient and proficient on finding things in the sky and, and, and looking at things. So I, when I started the podcast, that's kind of all I knew. I wasn't going to talk about astrophotography or darkroom techniques. I don't know those things. Astrophysics yeah. is well beyond me. And besides that, there are a lot of other podcasts and news organizations that will talk about the black holes and dark matter and things like that. So I don't, we don't usually cover those things on the pod podcast. The podcast typically runs between 15 minutes and 25 minutes. And uh, I don't just talk about what's up. I'll usually pick a topic and put that in. I do talk about my comet hunting uh, in the podcast. Uh, there are people who are interested in that. And in a sense, uh, if I never write an autobiography, this is it. If you listen to all the podcasts, you'll know about how I got into comet hunting and a lot of the adventures of comet hunting. I also talk a lot about the Messe Marathon and um, had a whole series on it a year and a half ago in which I went through every bit of it. Um, and we still talk about the Messe Marathon uh, probably on one third of the podcast throughout the year. I'm talking yeah. about Messe Marathon. Because that is 
still a big thing for amateur astronomers, although a lot of them use go-to telescopes. Yes, that's fine. We say that's acceptable. And um, some people now are just photographing them. You know, I know too, that there's some of the most popular new telescopes you don't look through. Uh, they just provide the image to your phone. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, you've mentioned this too, that this is, uh, this will be a subgroup of astronomers that we accept and we work side by side with and we help them grow their hobby too, even though they might hardly ever look through a telescope. Um, they're still doing astronomy and they'll still be side by side with us at star parties doing their thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I began doing the podcast once a week and uh, it takes, originally it would take 10 hours to write this thing. Gee, Doc, you actually Holy write cow. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> now I get it down to about six hours to write it. And um, usually it's 2,000 words to 3,500 words. And, uh, and then I record it and upload it and everything. So um, I enjoy doing the podcast, and it's a great way to get information out. Wow. That's like a lot of respect there for, for doing that. When we were first doing it, I tried to do that and I found that to be too much of a challenge and we, we've gone in a slightly different direction. By slightly, <laughs> you mean 180 degrees. <laughs> you don't, we don't put as much time in uh, at the, at the front end. That's for sure. Um, Don, I, so Chris and I have both uh, been on your website and, and have noticed your 18-inch telescope. Uh, it looks wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about that instrument? Yeah. Um, for I, had, I got my 6-inch telescope in 68. The 10-inch I got in 75, halfway through my first year of comet hunting. And I was using the 10-inch telescope for comet hunting um, for decades. And for years, I wanted to get a larger telescope, but maybe unlike most amateur astronomers, I don't spend a lot of money on my hobby. And um, one, we did not, didn't always have a lot, but two, other priorities come first when you're raising a family and stuff. So for decades, I thought, well, I'd like to have a bigger telescope. A lot of the other comet hunters were using 16-inch telescopes, and I was missing comets because they were just beyond the reach of what I was seeing. They were too faint for me. So um, in 2000, uh, 2005, 2006, I'm going through the newspaper and there's a member of the newspaper thing. And uh, there was an ad <laughs> saying that um, this guy's selling his telescope in the neighboring town for a couple thousand dollars, 18 inch. So wow. called him up. yeah, he still had it for sale. So I went over and I bought it. Um, it's tele, telenet. It's a, it was made from a kit and it has a 18 and a half inch mirror F 4.8, uh, Dobsonian telescope. And, um, I ended up putting electronic setting circles on because as I began comet hunting with that compared to the 10 inch telescope from fairly dark skies, I was going about a magnitude to a magnitude and a half fainter. And now I wasn't just picking up the typical 500 objects throughout the whole sky. I was picking up 1,500 or 2,000 objects. Um, so 
it made it a lot easier to identify things. I, it's not really a very, it could be a portable telescope. You can take all the tresses apart and everything, but I've, I've never taken it out to the field to go observing. I used it in Cofax in the observatory, and now I use it here in Arizona. And my observatory in Arizona is the shop. <laughs> and um, if I want to look toward the east, which I do for a lot of my comet hunting, I just open up the shop door and there, there's the eastern sky. And if I want to look anywhere else, I wheel it out to the north or south of the shop and do my, my astronomy there. I've only used this 18-inch telescope once for the Messe Marathon. And that was the most recent one in December. December 3rd, 4th, I did a marathon. You can do them any time of the year. You just don't get as many objects. And this time, for the first time, I used setting circles for the marathon. Why not? Everyone else does. But uh, the reason was because a lot of people do, and I've never had the experience of using setting circles to find the objects. I wanted to see what it's like for half the people out there. And, I, and this is what I learned. It's easier. <laughs> it's easier using the setting circles. Uh, and and uh, it's quicker. Um, but uh, I still typically, I mean, I've done 52 Messe marathons and 51 of them have been star hopping a lot of times now from memory. And that's the fastest way to do it is to memorize where everything is. So um, I use the 18 inch now for, for comet hunting and for some deep sky work. Uh, it's pretty good telescope optics. Uh, the mirror doesn't hold a coating very well. It probably needs to be recoded, but uh, it does an adequate job. My last two comet discoveries have been made with the 18 inch. Oh, right on. So, so you mentioned a few of your telescopes. Uh, so you, you definitely have a wide assortment of instruments. Um, what, what are some of your favorites? <laughs> Favorite right now is the 18 inch for the um, comet hunting. Uh, about two weeks ago, the digital setting circles in Colder, which is a electronic gizmo that fits on the base for the azimuth. And as you turn it, it sends a message to the little computer saying you're turning it. That has failed. So I don't have setting circles. No. I used it this morning without the setting circles. I did okay. <laughs> but then I covered an area without too many deep sky stuff. The 10-inch uh, telescope um, has gone through a few changes since I got the optics and built it. I bought the optics, but I built it in uh, mid-1975 after I began systematic comet hunting. That's the instrument I use for many of my first uh, 15 Messe marathons. And um, uh, then I switched over to the six inch reflector. And what I've done with the six inch reflector, it's a, it's a dinoscope made by Criterion, has excellent optics. The focal ratio is a bit long, F8. And um, it has an eyepiece holder, which is one and a quarter inch. And so the light coming out uh, and going into the eyepiece is limited in diameter and therefore your field of view is limited in diameter. What I did was to go to a hardware store and buy a plumbing fixture made out of rubber, which is used to convert um, to mate two pipes of different diameters. 
and it will mate a two inch pipe to a say a one and a quarter inch pipe. <laughs> so I, I remove I remove the sliding draw tube out of the eyepiece holder and and uh, crank out the 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 one that's in there all the time. And then I attach this fixture to the outside of that tube. And then the two inch eyepiece goes in the other end. Therefore, all the light that comes out of the one and a quarter inch focuser goes into an eyepiece. And I've increased my field of view to 1.8 degrees. And that eyepiece gives me 38 power. And for some reason, you can see, I can see very faint objects with that, the exit pupils, what, four or five millimeters. And, and it works very well. And I found my 10th uh, comet with that setup. Oh, wow. 1.8 with a six inch, 1.8 degree field of view, 38 power. And that was an 11th magnitude comet. And I've used that now for most of my Messier marathons. Also, when we do public star parties, it was, uh, it was the only telescope I had that was equatorial. So, um, uh, although sometimes a 10 inch would be on the pipe mount, but it has a clock drive if we have electricity. So for almost all the public star parties, I've used that six inch telescope and thousands of people have looked through it. Wow. So awesome. is that, is that the one that you, that your parents bought you when you were uh, a younger person? Yes. 1968. Uh, every Christmas, uh, my parents would say what to us four kids, what do you want for Christmas? And I wanted that telescope. It was $199. And they said, well, that's beyond our budget. We'll pay 50. So I, was, I had paper routes back then. So I yeah. had some money saved up. So I paid three quarters of it and uh, got it for Christmas in 68. As the astronauts of Apollo 8 were going around the moon, I got that telescope. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. The other instrument I have is homemade binoculars. And um, what? <laughs> yeah, I made homemade binoculars. They're about six inch aperture, and I built them for about four hundred dollars. And wow. um, discovered four comets with them. They have great contrast. But in 1983, the spring of 1983, the San Jose Astronomical Association has a uh, kind of like a garage sale. <laughs> they, they sell stuff off and. Um, you go there and you bid on it. And someone brought these two old war surplus aerial photography lenses. Each one weighs 22 pounds, <laughs> kilograms, 10 kilograms, and um, has five elements in it. The, the first uh, four elements are plus lenses. The front lens being six inches across, the back one, four and a half, and the back element is a minus lens. But they are aerial photography lenses, supposedly 36-inch wow. focal length. And I looked at that, and they had two of them, and I thought, wow, you know, what, what, could, you, you know, what could you do with two of them? <laughs> and um, we went home. Uh, no one bid on them. And I, I, I didn't bid on it because, you know, what, what I want those for. I went home, and I thought about it. And I thought, you know what? You could probably build binoculars with those. <laughs> um, and, and I uh, thought, well, a lot of binoculars usually have a prism because the lenses are really big and they're really far apart. And if you just bring the light straight back, your eyes have to be six inches apart at least in order to see through both of them. 
So prisms are usually used to bend the light in and then back again into your eyes. Yeah. But what if we use uh, mirror diagonals like you use in a reflector telescope? So it took me two weeks to plan how that could be built and um, do a cost analysis. I figured I could build it for under $300 and put it on a pipe mount. And um, after two weeks, I thought, okay, because I had called the guy and he said no one bought them. He still had them. So I called him back. I said, I'd like to buy them. So I bought them for $50 each. And in the next two weeks, I built the binoculars. They, the top part, uh, they're on a pipe mount. And they weigh, uh, the whole thing weighs uh, over 120 pounds. It's very heavy. Holy cow. And um, it gives a field of view of 2.4 degrees and about uh, 30 power. And wow. it's, uh, that's nice. It's a nice, you know, we're all used to 100 degree eyepieces where you get your eye up there and you have to look all over the place. For comet hunting, I do use a 100 degree eyepiece now. And I have a big area to look through. So my eyes always moving. With these, I, I'm using uh, Plosso eyepieces, also war surplus. I got them from Edmund Scientific. Edmund Scientific oh, yeah. <laughs> used to sell a lot of old surplus optics, very inexpensive. Yeah. And these mm -hmm. were two brass Plosso eyepieces for $12 each. Oh, so wow. they match and uh, they give a field of view of about 65 degrees. Yeah. So you look in there and you have great, great images, sharp. And um, you know, as, as, I want, as I've said many times about this, you can see star clouds in every constellation. It just gives good contrast. Wow. Um, wow. And I can see down to about 10 and a half, 11th magnitude for visual searching. And if you really want to peer through it and, and see something that you know is there, you can probably go down to 11 and a half magnitude or maybe 12. That's incredible. Um, Don, there's a photo on your website from, I think it's 1985 or maybe 1991, but you're with Dr. Brian Marsden with what appears to be giant binoculars. Are, is this your homemade <laughs> binoculars? That's it. Wow. That's it. I built it. I don't, you know, I don't build with metal and stuff. So I built it into a plywood box that's three feet by two feet by one feet. And then I have uh, two big tubes on the end uh, as do, 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 do caps, uh, keep the dew off and also any stray light. Yes, and that was at the location from which I had discovered my second comet, 1985E, at the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. We went there a year or two later and Dr. Marsden was a guest speaker, so I spent some time with him. Great guy. I could go on forever about Dr. Marsden. And uh, David Levy had approached the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference team and said, uh, we ought to put a plaque where Don found the comet. So the next year they put a plaque there and we had a dedication ceremony for the plaque. Um, and it's still there, even though the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference is no longer being held. If you go to Camp Oaks, you'll see the plaque. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I, I just found another photo of, of the binoculars with uh, <laughs> like a, a better perspective of the mount as well. Um, that, 
the size of those is incredible. <laughs> They're big. Yeah. You don't take them to the football game. That's for sure. Um, and, and uh, but on the other hand, I used to put them in the back of the pickup truck yeah. and uh, had a camper shell protected and drive to Loma Prieta hundred times a year with those. And I could set them up in uh, five or six minutes and, and get right, right to work. In fact, one TV station came out with, uh, with their camera crew and showed me setting it up. I don't know if I can put that on the website. Maybe, maybe we can sometimes, but they did a whole story showing how cool. I set those things up and use them. Wow. I've discovered four comets cool. with that instrument and four comets with the 10 inch re re reflector and one comet um, with a six or five inch refractor made out of the same aerial photography lenses. Not only did that one person have two for sale, but those aerial photography lenses were being sold by a guy in Southern California who brought them to the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference, laid them all out on blankets and said, you know, they're like 50 bucks each. So I bought wow. two or three more and I made a pair, I made a refractor telescope and, and found my fifth comet with that instrument. <laughs> wow, that's and amazing. Two, uh, two comets with the 18 inch and one with the six inch. Wow. Did you know Shane and I have also made binoculars? <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> they're those pocket ones though that you make out of the surplus uh focal reducers for the first digital cameras that they can fit in your pocket they're the exact opposite of what you constructed <laughs> mm, okay good stuff maybe uh that i i could I, we could just talk about the the binoculars and the telescopes all day here but maybe we should talk briefly at least about the uh messy marathon and uh yeah, maybe we'll just hop into that. So maybe uh, maybe we'll start with like what what is the Messy Marathon and kind of what what is your part in the history of of the Messy Marathon? Well, the Messy Marathon is an attempt to view as many of the hundred and ten objects in the Messier catalog. Now, the Messier catalog is a list of hundred and ten galaxies, clusters, and nebula. This catalog was assembled by an astronomer named Charles Messier in the late 1700s, he searched for comets. And when he found fuzzy objects, he would record where they were. And, and when he did his subsequent comet hunting in that area, if he ran across it, he would say, oh yeah, I've seen this before. It's a fixed object and it's not a comet. And then he could move on. He also examined the catalogs of other astronomers and checked out the objects they pointed out. In fact, that's probably how M6 and 7 got in there. I don't know if he would have seen those because they're, they get no more than six degrees above his southern horizon. Yeah. And, and so he would check out these other objects and if they were worthy of being put in his catalog because they were fuzzy and they were where they said they would be, um, they would end up in his catalog. And he was the first astronomer to really put together a accurate catalog of nebulous objects. Now it's possible uh, in late March to see all 110 in one night from certain latitudes. And this was something I thought about from time to time in the late 1970s. And as I did my comet hunting, I would write down everything I would see on each observing session. 
So I had a good record of when I would first see M12 in the morning sky, because as the earth goes around the sun with each passing day, you lose objects in the evening sky to the evening twilight as the heavens move a bit because the earth is moving. And you, with each passing morning, you pick up objects in the morning sky by about a degree a day. So as we go through the year, objects come and go through our sky. And I had a pretty good idea of when these objects disappeared in the western sky in the evening and when I could pick them up again. And I began to think, wow, maybe you can get a, a lot of the Messe objects during a certain time of the year. And I wrote an article in uh, September, it appeared in September of 1978 in the San Jose Astronomical Association newsletter. Uh, and I said, let's do something, a Messe Marathon. It was one of the editors who suggested the name Marathon. And uh, I was thinking of several names, including that. I thought, okay, we'll call it a marathon. And uh, we, we did our first one in um, March of 1979 from Loma Prieta, which is a mountain in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California, where I did my comet hunting. I've been there. I've actually been well, to that spot. <laughs> you've been to Loma Prieta? Yeah, I have because I <laughs> really? went to Silicon Valley for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. And that's where that's where the fault. So line you goes. drove by where I was. That's right. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's where the fault uh, yeah, line we, goes through. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, although the Loma Prieta earthquake was actually centered a little bit south of there. Okay. In the forest of Nicene Parks, but yeah, uh, it got the name Loma Prieta earthquake. Yeah, but that hill because it's up on a hill where you were. I think there's like a hill there, like a like, it's like a big yeah, a little, little, bit little right. Yeah, yeah. I've been there. Um, yeah, that's where I would set up at the 3,300 foot elevation. Wow, that's awesome. So that's where we held our, our first Messe Marathon. And um, the idea began to take off. Uh, Walter Scott Houston, who wrote for Sky and Telescope magazine for many years, and he was a deep sky guy. Uh, and, and he brought it up in the March issue of 1979, Sky and Telescope. And uh, a group in Pittsburgh had been doing it. And he later got word from a group in Spain that was kind of mad at him that he took their idea. They've been doing it for 12 years. And there might have been some in Southern California who were doing it informally. So this whole thing kind of blossomed in 1979. I put together an observing order that many are still using today. And then I've written a couple books on it. Uh, I've done over 50 Messe marathons um, throughout the decades of uh, in some years, I'll do two, three, or four um, with different instruments and so on, just to see how it is. Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned doing the, the Messi Marathon even in December, and, and typically we often think of March as, as the Messi Marathon time, but um, are, there, are there good times of the year? Are there better times than others to do it? And maybe you can just go over that a little bit with us, Don. Yes, late October is a good time uh, because you still have the Sagittarius objects, the winter, uh, excuse me, summer Milky Way in the evening sky. And uh, you'll be getting the galaxies rising at dawn. And so you can encompass all of those and you can get up, at least from this latitude, 106 objects in uh, late October. August isn't too bad neither uh, because then you have some of the galaxies that are beginning to set 
in the evening sky and in, in morning sky you, or midnight sky, you could get a lot of the summer Milky Way stuff. Uh, but there are times when the sun is in the same vicinity as the summer Milky Way, and you begin losing quite a few, or when the sun is in the same area as some of the galaxies in Virgo, and you lose those. These are challenging Messe marathons in which the difference of just a few days might mean you'll make it or break it with some of those objects. The Messe marathon that we do in late March is one of the easier ones. You have your evening objects, M77, 74, 33. Now, if you can get those first three objects, and then get over to 31, 32, and 110. You get 110, uh, you're good to go for the rest of the night. Yeah. And those galaxies in Virgo, you have, if you want to take two or three hours to do them, you, you have the time because they're in the east and they move across the sky all night. And, and then the summer Milky Way rises, well, two, three hours before twilight. So you can leisurely go through those objects. Now, you live a bit north, uh, your main problem would probably be M55 near the morning twilight. Yep. That is far south, and it's stuck in your southeastern sky, sometimes below the horizon uh, at the time of twilight. And then M30 is, is the most difficult object, and that kind of hangs in the solar vicinity until the last week or so of March, then it becomes visible from especially the southern latitudes and then uh, visibility um, in, moves north. Um, but it, it, the mar marathon can be done any, any time of the year. Um, now, um, I'm writing another book. It's not published yet, oh. but it's done. And I talk about doing the Mesa Marathon um, every month of the year. And I wrote sections on what it's like from 50 degrees north. You guys don't have astronomical twilight. <laughs> you never have dark, complete darkness for about a month or two. Yeah. So I suggest you start it at nautical twilight <laughs> and just do the best you can. But uh, the amazing thing is you can do a three-hour MSA marathon <laughs> in, in the summer and, and get... 80, 90 objects, but it's only a three-hour marathon. It's a real which marathon. Which no one else can, can do, you know. I mean, <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. So maybe uh, sometime in the summer, uh, you know, you guys can put on a three-hour marathon. Yeah, I know that uh, like M55 is that large globular that's just off the uh, handle of the, uh, of the Sagittarius asterism. And uh, even even in in good skies here, it's very low because it's a pretty large object. I think I think it's like remnant of the uh, that globular cluster is like a remnant of the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy. I think if I'm recalling correctly, or there's there was some theory about that at one point in time. And uh, and then M30 is that globular that's just off of the uh, the western portion of of Capricorn. So that one there too is is a bit of a challenge. Um, so is there, are there better um, latitudes, I guess? What would be the ideal latitude to do this, this from? I guess once, once you get down into 
uh, like the southern U.S., that's probably a really good spot to be. Probably the best latitude for doing the Meste Marathon is about 20 or 25 degrees north latitude. Uh, the window for finding 110 objects or 109 even increases in width as you move south. And it also moves toward the beginning of March so that you get down to 20 degrees north latitude or even 15. The best time in order to do the Messe Marathon then becomes uh, first, second, and third week of March. Now, as you move further south, the biggest problem becomes finding M52. And uh, that's a open star cluster that's fairly far north. Yeah. And from those southern latitudes, it, it sets about the time, well, it sets before the sky gets dark and it rises after the sky brightens in the morning. So that's the object you miss at that point. Yeah, that's an open cluster in Cassiopeia, I think, isn't it? In that bright band. Yes. yes yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Huh. Wow. That's really cool. That's really cool. And uh, yeah, you talked about some of the other times. And I think you, you may have mentioned this, but have you observed them all in the, uh, or have you have you tried the Messi Marathon in the 18? I think you said that you tried it in early December with the setting circles. Was that the first time you tried the Messi Marathon in the 18 inch? Yes. Um, yes, that's the first time I've tried it with the 18 inch. I tried it with a, someone uh, gave me a 16 inch telescope around the time I moved out here. And um, I don't use that very often. The optics really aren't that great, but I did use a 16 inch a couple of years ago, but got clouded out halfway through after 66 objects. Oh, geez. This is the way that I do the Messe Marathon. Um, there's a few other people who do it this way. Um, I'll, I'll start and usually it gets dark around eight o'clock at night and I'll go through the objects and by 940, I will have found 66 of them. Everything that's has set and is up in the sky. I'll be all the way over to M104 and then maybe M68, which rises next. And I've got everything there is. So I'll usually go to bed for four or five hours and then get up again at around uh, two or three in the morning and then finish up the rest of the objects. It is a dusk to dawn marathon and Many people do spend the whole night doing it. If you do, you can spend eight or 10 minutes on each object. But I go through quicker, quicker than that. I just find them, look at them, move on. And I think when I was reading, um, I, was, I was taking a look through the Messy Marathon Observer's Guide. Um, I think you, you have actually discovered comets while, while working through the Messy list. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, all, no, all of my comet discoveries have been while systematically searching. But there are other astronomers who have discovered comets while looking at Messier objects. And I mentioned that I had a podcast about accidental comet discoveries a few weeks ago. In 1968, a couple astronomers at in the astronomy convention in New Mexico were looking at M57. They were looking for M57 and they picked up a, a new comet. And um, 1975, uh, M2 was being observed by Doug Berger in Northern California. And next to M2 was a undiscovered comet. He picked it up. Dennis Milan was observing M2. 
He picked up the same comet a few days later, and they both got their names on it. Um, 1995, uh, Alan Hale was looking at M70 and found a comet next to it. Thomas Bopp, a few hundred miles away, was looking at the same object, and he discovered the same comet. They got their names on it. Um, Vince Patru of um, Canada uh, found one while looking for M1 uh, in 2000, 2002, I think, and uh, he discovered a comet, which bears his name, a periodic comet. So, yes, there are times when people have looked for Messe objects, not necessarily during the marathon, but uh, and, and found comets. Some of the other accidental discoveries, I think we've had three of them in the last uh, 40 years, and I think four in the last 50 years, have been people doing variable star work. And so they're finding their variable stars and there happens to be a comet next to it. Now, if there's ever a comet, an undiscovered comet, near a Messe object during the Messe Marathon, there could be many people <laughs> Uh, who would pick it up at around the same time. But that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Vance, the, the discovery by Vance, he uh, he lives in our city, actually. And, and the discovery was uh, in oh, a yeah. interprovincial park that um, is about, it's about a four hour drive from here. And, and the uh, annual Saskatchewan Summer Star Party is held there. And and uh, yeah, he's walked us through that discovery a few times at the local club, uh, giving presentations on it. And it's, it's quite fascinating. It is. It is. It's quite a good story. Yeah. Yeah. He was using a 20-inch uh, obsession uh, when he discovered that and uh, yeah, created quite a stir. It was in August of 2000. Yes. I believe yeah, it was, right. or 2001. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. week we had a, uh, a wildfire in our area just a mile or so from our house so we were kind of preoccupied with that well that oh no oh gee yeah do you have anything else to to add shane before we thank don for joining us today no this has been awesome i've really enjoyed the conversation um you know i, I love hearing about visual astronomy with different instruments particularly homemade instruments um i i have a lot of appreciation and respect for that and and uh you know the messier marathon um is a pretty cool event and and uh you know comet discovery is is um something i've always been interested in and something i've thought about maybe attempting but uh never really knowing where to start so i think i need to do a little more research but uh anyway really enjoyed the conversation so thanks don yeah thanks so much for joining us today don um and for for listeners be sure to check out uh don mccoltz or don mccoltz.com d-o-n-m-a-c-h-h olz.com and you can subscribe and follow Don for his podcast if you google it you can find it at looking up with Don and he is at Don McColls on Twitter so if you look there you'll find it as well thank you so much uh, Don for joining us today and thanks again Shane thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you are interested in more information would like to contact us or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.